the tragedy of Miami-Dade's police director, the triumph of Miami Beach's new police chief, the challenges of teaching black history in Florida, and who was the real Marti? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll try to make sense of why Miami-Dade County Police Director Freddie Ramirez shot himself on I-75 last Sunday night. But we'll also recognize the accomplishment of Miami Beach's first black police chief, Wayne Jones. We'll look at South Florida's reaction to the state's controversial new approach to teaching about slavery. And we'll talk to the producer of the new play, Hierro, which takes a deeper dive into Cuban independence hero, Jose Marti. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. This week in Miami started with sad and stunning news. Sunday evening, after an apparently heated family altercation at a law enforcement convention in Tampa, Miami-Dade County's top cop, police director Freddie Ramirez, shot himself in the head on Interstate 75. He survived and is still recovering at a Tampa hospital. According to Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levinkava, Ramirez had just shortly before offered his resignation by phone. She refused it and hoped to talk to him about it the next day. Ramirez has been a candidate for Miami-Dade Sheriff, and that scenario is now certainly thrown into chaos. But more important, this shock is also a reminder that police officers face one of the highest risk rates of suicide of any profession. And we want to warn you that the conversation we're about to have involves discussion of suicide. If you are someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, call or text 988 for help. Joining me now to help make sense of this situation is Jim DeFeedy. He's a CBS 4 News investigative reporter here in Miami and host of the station's Sunday morning program, Facing South Florida. Here in the studio with me is WLRN's health reporter, Veronica Saragovia. Jim DeFeedy first. What is Freddie Ramirez's current condition? He's lost the use of one eye, correct? Yes, he lost the eye. He has undergone... I think at least three surgeries since the shooting Sunday evening. He is still in Tampa General Hospital, although we expect him to transfer back to South Florida at some point in the near future. Uh, but his prognosis is good. He will survive. The bullet went through his right temple and out his right eye. And so he'll be facing some reconstructive surgery. But he has definitely lost the use of his vision in his right eye. Right. Now, Jim, you know Ramirez particularly well, and by most accounts, this tragic occurrence was out of character for him. Were you shocked by what happened last Sunday? I mean, to your mind, had there been any signs that he was vulnerable to a breakdown like this? No, it's, it, it was certainly shocking is the, is the appropriate word for it. Uh, Freddie, I've known Freddie for a while. Um, you know, he, he came to heightened national and international attention during the Surfside building collapse, right. where he often handled those press briefings. And he has always been known as someone who, uncharacteristic of, of a lot of police, shows his emotion fairly easily in, in those situations, whether it's the shooting of a fellow officer, uh, which he dealt with the loss of one of his own uh, men 
couple of years ago who was shot and killed. Um, you know, he also uh, speaks often very passionately about shootings involving children uh, and certainly at Surfside. So he is someone who can be emotional at times, but I've always seen that as a good thing. And I think it's one of the reasons why the community has always responded so well to him because he tends to speak from the heart. But right. I guess the long way around is to say, no, did anyone think that that he was unstable to do this? Look, I still don't think we fully understand the right. what was going through his mind at the time. Right. And this, no, the, there was this, nothing this, like that. This was apparently triggered by a heated argument Ramirez was having with his wife at that conference in Tampa. And according to police sources, at one point he threatened to kill himself during that altercation. She was in the car with him on I-75 when he shot himself, correct? And because of that, we obviously have to ask, what more this week have we learned about that altercation and, and why it drove Ramirez to do this? So according to my sources, I've spoken to extensively, as well as some information that's been released uh, eventually by the Tampa Police Department. We know that Freddie Ramirez and his wife were attending a, a sheriff's conference in Tampa. Uh, on Sunday evening, they were at the welcome reception. It was the first night of the conference. They left the welcome reception around 6.30, went outside uh, uh, the JW Marriott Hotel in Tampa, apparently got into a heated argument. A passerby claims to have seen Ramirez remove, or pull out his gun, and potentially even put it in his mouth in a threatening manner like he was going to kill himself there. Tampa police were called. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, Ramirez and his wife were both interviewed by Tampa police. Both Ramirez and his wife denied that they had had any sort of physical altercation. Right. They, they both denied that Ramirez had threatened to kill himself. And Ramirez told the officers at 630 or closer to seven that he had no intentions of harming himself. Right. And so for this reason, Tampa police did not, quote, Baker Act. Ramirez did not uh, take him into any sort of custody because they determined he was not a threat to himself or anyone else, correct? Yeah, and but he was kicked out of the hotel by the Marriott folks, and it was in that preceding hour and a half, two hours, where he's driving, uh, getting out of the hotel, he made a number of phone calls. He spoke to a number of people. You referenced the call to Danielle Levine Cava, in which he offered his resignation. Right. Again, you know, others I've spoken to, talked to him during that time, said that he was... He was upset that he felt he had lost and blown everything, that this incident outside the hotel was going to was going to cost him his job, going to cost him the the sheriff's race that he was running. And that's why he offered to resign. And so all of that was building when he pulled off to the side of the road around 9 p.m. or so and then proceeded to shoot himself in the head. All right. Veronica Saragovia, as a health reporter, you obviously know that this incident also spotlights the stress of police work. Police officers face a 54% higher risk of suicide than the general U.S. population. Uh, organizations like Blue Help, which collects law enforcement suicide data, reported that last year 180 officers took their own lives, which is three times the number of police killed in the line of duty. What happened this week? Is, is it a reminder that South Florida is certainly not immune to this? Oh, absolutely. And that, in fact, the Miami-Dade County Police Department has chaplains that try to help. Uh, but in my reporting, I mean, I always think of 
Tamar region, it's so large, it's an issue of when the next disaster will happen, not if. And it's yeah. very difficult because they have access to things that even as a reporter who covered Surfside day in and out, I was not allowed to go to the rubble. So they, you know, they were the first responders who dealt with the frustrations, who were searching through the rubble, who were just seeing everything firsthand. And so um, absolutely, they, yeah. I, you know, and I've reported on the, the difficulties that they continue to deal with after, since then. Right. And Veronica, speaking of that 2021 Surfside tragedy, and, and Jim brought it up earlier, one of the things that sticks out is the bond that Freddie Ramirez developed with the families of the victims there. What does that indicate, not just about Ramirez, but perhaps the emotional baggage he might have been carrying that we maybe didn't know about? Yeah, because a lot of first responders, um, including I've met Ramirez and others in Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, they tend to bottle it all up and then maybe their outlet might be either their family to talk to them or to music they might and things like that but um, I saw in the last few days an outpouring of support from people who live in Surfside uh, posting on Nextdoor or social media saying they wanted nothing but the best for him and they were shocked by what had happened because they had known him as someone who was always there for them during this time. Right. Jim DeFiti, I want to ask you too about that relationship Ramirez had with the families of the Surfside victims and and what it says about is a relationship in general with this community which which you alluded, alluded to earlier yeah one of the things that has struck me is that in the hours after this shooting as i was doing my reporting on it uh, i had a number of the surfside families uh, reach out to me you know they were wanting to know how they could get messages to to freddie and his family you know could they send food to the ha- to the hospital in tampa it was, you know, and, and in speaking to some of them, they said that this was all that their group chat, many of the families still have a group chat as a support system for themselves uh, two years later, and that, that they are trying, that this was all they were talking about was 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 Freddie uh, doing this and what they could do to help him. But it goes to your, your, your question, which is, you know, Freddie was a unique cop in that regard, and and. He not only had support within the department, but within the community, which is often very hard for police directors to manage. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the self-inflicted shooting of Miami-Dade County Police Director Freddie Ramirez. Um, Jim, that also brings us, unfortunately, to the more political side of this tragedy. Ramirez was the favorite to win next year's election for the new post of Miami-Dade County Sheriff. It seems highly unlikely he'll be still in the running now or or that he'll continue to serve as police director. Where does this put Miami-Dade law enforcement now and and what will the sheriff's race look like going forward? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, I think that there was uh, a belief that uh, Freddie was the prohibitive favorite, that in all likelihood he would be the next sheriff of Miami-Dade County or the first sheriff in, in some 50, 60 years. And that, uh, you know, and so what the next option is, I don't know. You know, there are a couple of announced candidates, but I would anticipate that that if Freddie leaves a race, and I do think you're right, I think that the the, the focus now for him will be on his own care and and, and getting the help and support he needs for himself and for his family. Uh, so I don't know who else will step up. You know, one of the things that made Freddie Ramirez such an attractive candidate is he is actually 
in the top ranks of law enforcement. He was the police director. The job of sheriff does not require you to be a sworn law enforcement officer. Right. You can be just a regular politician and decide to become the sheriff. So having someone with a professional background that Freddie had was seen as comforting in the community that never really wanted a elected sheriff's position anyway. So now we're going to have to wait and see who steps up. All right. Miami investigative reporter Jim DeFeedy is the host of the CBS4 News Sunday morning program Facing South Florida. Jim, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Always a pleasure. I want to ask Veronica Saragovia to stay with us for a moment here because we take a uh, before we take a break, though, because um, I'd like to discuss with you, Veronica, the, the, the week's other important police news in South Florida, a more positive story. You also cover Miami Beach government for us. And on Wednesday, the Miami Beach City Commission confirmed Wayne Jones as the city's first black police chief. It was a significant moment for those of us old enough to remember when black people were not allowed to spend the night in Miami Beach, or as, or as Jones pointed out, to even drive there. I'm proud of this moment because of my dad. Because as a young boy learning to drive in South Florida, there were two cities I was told I could not go to as a young black driver. One of them was Miami Beach. And so when I became a Miami Beach police officer, my, my dad cried. He cried because of the history, the way black people are treated in the city. Veronica, tell us about Wayne Jones and, and how he got to this moment. Well, he was appointed deputy police chief in 2019. And when uh, the current chief, Richard Clements, announced his retirement, which will happen on October 31st, then it opened up this position. And the city manager, Alina Hudak, said that she decided to speak with a lot of the um, uh, staff of, my, of Miami Beach Police Department and see who would be the right person for the role. And actually, speaking of Director Freddie Ramirez, he was involved in those interviews and in, in selecting who would be the right person. Really? Yes. Okay. I, I was not aware of that. Yeah. Huh. Now, Jones has almost 30 years of experience with the Miami Beach Police Force, a force that has definitely had its share of police abuse controversy in recent years. What do folks in Miami Beach hope he'll bring as the new chief to, to fix some of those problems? Well, the issues that the residents, I'm a Miami Beach resident myself, and that people talk about are there is, um, I guess, some sense of, of insecurity in the city in certain parts. The people complain about homelessness, and that's become controversial in how the city will and the police department moving forward is going to address it. Um, and the main topic that comes up come February or March in Miami Beach is, of course, the spring break. Spring break. Yes. Yep. And mm -hmm. so that um, the city manager said that she has hopes that that um, soon to be Chief Jones will be able to come up with a way to to better handle it. And, and one of the reasons uh, you had also mentioned to me that people in the city government and, and particularly in the city commission were hopeful about bringing Wayne Jones on as police chief is because there is, let's always, let's face it, always a racial component to the spring break controversy. Yeah, least. absolutely. Because the majority of visitors who come during that time period are black. And there's been during the pandemic, especially there was heightened police, but a very like 
um, extremely heightened police uh, presence and response. And so it, it caused for a lot of tension between the Black Affairs Committee of the city and uh, elected officials and the police department asking, you know, was this response necessary? They brought in um, police from Coral Gables and other other areas of the county. So it just seems like a little bit to some excessive. Mm-hmm. And others are saying, well, we need to come up with something, be it, you know, um, you have to pay to get to Ocean Drive. They have, they're just trying to figure out what they're going to do and they have high hopes that Chief Jones, um, future Chief Jones will be able to to help guide the city. Now that said, some of the Miami Beach Commission was concerned the search process for a new police chief wasn't thorough enough or broad enough. Here's Commissioner Kristen Rose Gonzalez discussing My that. My primary issue was with the process. Becoming a police chief is an enormous responsibility and this job was never posted. I was never able to speak to Chief Jones prior to the process to find out what his vision is or how he plans to motivate um, a police force of nearly 500 officers. And uh, I would have liked to see possibly a national search. Uh, That said, now that he's been chosen as our police chief, um, I congratulated him and voted for him. And uh, he's got a lot to prove. He told me in six months he's going to turn it around. And I'm, I'm optimistic that that's going to happen. Now, Veronica, do Miami Beach residents themselves also feel the police chief search perhaps wasn't broad enough? I've been thinking about that, and I think that we don't have that kind of interaction with the police the way, let's say, speaking of Surfside, when I'm there, I always see they, people can meet with police officers at Starbucks, and we don't really have that kind of relationship in Miami Beach, and I think that because this was an internal selection, it maybe didn't make it onto, say, social media, or, or it, it, there wasn't that much talk around the city about how this process was taking place, right. but the city manager did explain that um, she felt that he, for instance, he led the cities. He created the city's human trafficking unit. He's been a leader with Miami-Dade County on investigating human trafficking and auto mm-hmm. theft. And, and then she just feels very confident in his ability to take take to lead, you know, to right. take forward. Well, still, in the, in the 30 seconds we have left, what do you think is the psychological effect there of having the first black police chief in Miami Beach. I mean, it's so important in a city like we discussed. I mean, even Mayor Dan Gelber mentioned that you used to have to have an ID card uh, if you were African-American or black and, and leave by a certain hour. And um, black Americans could not own property north of Fifth Street. And it's been wow. an absolutely shameful, harrowing history that, uh, you know, now is being mm. corrected. All right. Veronica Zaragovia is WLRN's health reporter. Thanks, Veronica. Thank you so much, Tim. Still to come. South Florida's reaction to Florida's new teaching on black history and slavery. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last week, the Florida Department of Education issued new standards for teaching history in public schools, in particular black history. Florida, especially Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, was already under intense national scrutiny for recent efforts to modify how black studies are taught in the state, moves that critics say water down, if not strip away, the necessary discussion of systemic racism in America. So alarm bells went off last week when Florida educators learned that as part of the new standards, they'll be required to teach middle schoolers that enslaved people in America derived, quote, personal benefit from slavery through the skills they learned. 
Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz said it's meant to teach kids, quote, the good, the bad, and the ugly, unquote, about that ugly part of U.S. history. But teachers, especially here in South Florida, are asking what in the world could have ever been good about slavery? What do you think about Florida's controversial new approach to history? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now are Florida State Senator Rosalind Osgood, a Democrat who represents much of Broward County in her 32nd district, and Mayada Ursoff, a history teacher at Palmetto Middle School in the city of Pinecrest in Miami-Dade County. Senator Osgood, you're African-American, and you're going to be taking part in a town hall on August 10th at the Antioch Baptist Church in Miami Gardens to discuss these new Florida teaching guidelines on African-American history. Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz has agreed to attend the forum. Is that correct? That's correct. So let me read parts of a statement his department issued to us. It says that the controversial guideline regarding slavery is meant to, quote, show that some slaves developed highly specialized trades from which they benefited. Any attempt to reduce slaves to just victims of oppression fails to recognize their strength, courage, and resiliency during a difficult time in American history. It is disappointing, but nevertheless unsurprising, that critics would reduce months of work to create Florida's first ever standalone strand of American history, African American history standards, to a few isolated expressions, end quote. Senator, I'll also mention that you're a former Broward County School Board member. So if Commissioner Diaz does attend this upcoming town hall, how do you respond or how will you respond to this statement he's put out? Well, the statement is not correct and it's out of context. If you're going to fix your mouth to say that black people benefited from slavery, you must also celebrate and respect them by also teaching that they were brought here in 1619 uh, and enslaved because they had already built a civilization in Africa. They already had skills. They came with skills. And for anyone to not be compassionate about the atrocity of slavery, how women were raped, their kids were beaten and taken away from them, their husbands were beating. It is just a irresponsible comment for Mr. Diaz or any other leader to make. And as an African-American, I found it very offensive. However, I am hopeful. I'm a person of faith, and I'm hoping that Mr. Diaz will come to our community, the South Florida community, and hear from people a mixed group of people about how offensive and how degrading and insulting those comments are. Well, Commissioner Diaz and Governor DeSantis insist this sort of revisionism not only sets the historical record straight, but casts the African-American community in a more positive light, as, as that statement, I think, tried uh, to, to express. What, to your mind, is the flaw of their reasoning? And, and how, as, as many critics have asserted, does this sort of thing actually hurt the African-American community? Well, their reasoning is without discussion. When you are in a leadership position in government, you have to talk to people to better understand 
your comments and your perspective so that you can be impeccable with your words, meaning that your words can be without sin, without hurt, without harm. When we think about slavery and we have discussions about slavery in history, just African-American history in general, we know that history is where we get empirical evidence of things that work well. And it also gives us our horrible lessons learned that we should never repeat. We also know that history is what allows us to think critically as we hear historical facts. Facts of history are facts of history. It's not about Mr. Diaz or Governor DeSantis' perspective. It is actually what happened. And I think if they would just become unafraid of people, all people that live in this state, black people, LGBT uh, individuals from that community, Muslim people, Hindu. We are a very diverse state. And you have to fellowship and interact and talk with people in a broad sense. It can't just be five or six people representing the perspective. But at the end of the day, does this assertion that s s enslaved people somehow benefited from their slavery, does, does that... Uh, sort of trivialize the pain of, of slavery, you know, at the end of the discussion? Yeah, it actually re-traumatize people of color because it makes you think about all of the blood that was shared, how black families were dismantled during slavery where our men were beaten and taken away from their homes. A lot of times force with physical force where they would watch their wives be raped and they couldn't say or do anything. It shows a very high level of, of insensitivity and non-compassion. Mm -hmm. And many black people are angry about it. We feel insulted. I've sent out an email blast from my office and I've gotten an overwhelming response from people, both black and white, that are really hurt by this kind of rhetoric. Mayada Ursoff, you asserted in a letter to the Miami Herald this past week that you and many other Florida teachers cannot in good conscience follow these new state guidelines on African-American history, especially on the slavery issue. Why? That's correct. Um, good to be with you, Tim. Um, first of all, if I, I will never adhere to these assertions um, because that's not history. That's fake history intended for uh, political use only. Um, and the kids, the students in middle school and high school and elementary school have the right to learn about the truths, the facts only, not twisted history, not, twi not history that this certain group of political leaders um, wants us to teach, but the truth. And that's it. And I refuse to follow by the, follow these guidelines. But how? Fake. But how will teachers like yourself circumvent, if not defy, these new guidelines without running afoul of state sanctions, for example, of some sort? Um, um, first of all, if we teach the truth and stick to the truth, the, uh, that's that's going that's not running afoul. That's just teaching the truth. We mm -hmm. have our First Amendment constitutional rights, 14th Amendment constitutional rights. Um, why is it that only African-American kids are deprived of their history? What about the Jewish kids 
with the Holocaust? What about the Native Americans who got slaughtered and their land taken? All of all of these kids, all of a sudden, have have the right to learn about their history, except for the African Americans do not have a right to learn about their their past and their history. So I'm not afraid. Uh, these are facts. We teach through primary sources, um, and we teach the truth. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing Florida's new standards for teaching black history and slavery. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Senator Osgood, some civil rights leaders, including NAACP President Derek Johnson, have called this just the latest example of what they call Governor DeSantis's quote, policy violence against black history and black studies. Do you agree with that? And, and, and what exactly do they mean by that? I do agree. And Dr. Carol Anderson, who wrote a book many years ago called Right Rage, speaks to it on another level of how we see a lot of the systemic racism that actually is put into public policy to hurt certain groups of people. When you look at those standards, I think it's around page number 17, and it talks about black people uh, being victims of violence perpetuated by black people as it referenced the Okoye massacre, the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, the Atlanta massacre. All of those massacres were started by white mobs, Okoye specifically because a black man was denied the right to vote. So to put that kind of thing into a curriculum and first create a policy that Mr. Diaz uh, passed when he was a senator, HB7, that says that you cannot teach something that will make people feel uncomfortable or cause psychological distress. This is exactly what they're doing. Right, and you just touched on the point. I mean, many DeSantis critics say he's gone down this path simply to win over Trump voters in the Republican presidential primary. But is this sort of thing not, not just regarding black studies, but the LGBTQ community, for example, as you pointed out earlier, Senator, it, do you think it's starting to backfire on him politically? I do. And, and Tim, I mean, we cannot politicize our kids and their education. It's just so wrong. I mean, as an elected official, regardless of your ethnicity, your race, your political party, our kids are a blessing from God. They are a precious commodity, and you can't use them in political wars. Um, Republican Congressman Byron Donaldson made a very good statement about the new curriculum and his hope for the revisions on certain parts of it. And there was a lot of backlash against right. him, again, because he's a Trump supporter. For me, I don't care who yeah. a person is voting for when it comes to our children, what's being taught in our schools. We can't politicize it. It's just not right. right. Mayada Ursoff, does this sort of infusion of politics and education have the potential of driving people like yourself out of the teaching profession here in South Florida? Yes, absolutely. I've seen many of my colleagues or former colleagues from different schools uh, leave because um, of DeSantis's new so-called educational policies. And that was like the final straw, the final, sorry, nail in the coffin. And they, you know, they just, the pressure is tremendous. And um, but, uh, it, it's, it, yes, yeah, sorry. No, no, go, no, ahead. Go, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, it's just um, we, you know, teachers have enough to deal with, and and now we have to deal with this um, uh, political white supremacist guidelines, and that's just totally unacceptable and totally unacceptable but, for the black children in my classes. But I'm also curious, Mayada. So much of this has to do with Governor DeSantis and Florida Republicans it's insisting that the way black history is currently being taught makes white students feel unduly, quote, guilty about who they are. Do you sense that your white well, students and also the parents of white students really feel that way? No, I've never had a problem. I've never had a phone call. I've never had a reaction from any of my students. As a matter of fact, I had um, Dr. Marvin Dunn come to my class last year to give a presentation of his life experience in um, in Florida, uh, during Dr. Dunn being a, a prominent African American historian here in, in, in Florida. Yes, yes, and he, um, the, 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 all of my students were intently listening. They were curious. They had questions. No one, no one ran to the bathroom with a tissue, crying and calling their parents up that they feel bad. Mm -hmm. Kids want to know the truth. And when I told them what was happening politically, that that this presentation with Dr. Dunn. Um, is being um, like like banned because it might feel make you feel bad. They were outraged. Senator Osgood, let me put that question to you as well. How much of this do you feel is about the politically driven aim of making white Floridians feel better about themselves and their history rather than the supposed aim of making black and other minority Floridians feel better? I agree with you. I don't know of any empirical evidence that any student has ever felt uncomfortable. Um, I was on the school board for nine and a half years. No white teachers ever complained. I am a product of Fort Lauderdale High School in Broward County, which was predominantly white when I attended, and we were taught black history. This is all just something that is being politicized, and perhaps maybe the individuals that are pushing forth these bills feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable, and they could get a good lesson from black history. What's obvious to me about these standards is that we have some of them that really need a lesson in black history, because right. even during the Civil War, there were many white people that supported what was going on. There are many white people that was against slavery as well. Now, to end this segment here, we have Lee. He is an African-American uh, Miami-Dade County Schools teacher uh, who is, fears that the new curriculum trivializes African-American history. Lee, what, what exactly do you mean? Mm -hmm. Let me just say that after teaching for 50 years in Dade County, I finally retired, but I'm also the descendant of slave owners. Um, and I know my history. I know the, the evils of slavery. I don't feel that modern white people are accountable for the sins of our great-grandfathers, but we need to know what is our history. And we need to know, instead of encouraging skills, what happened to, in the black American community is that when skills were mm -hmm. acquired, the um, people were punished, cities were burned, people were killed. Right. And, 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 and we can also point out, Lee, that one of the most important skills to, to humanity, reading and writing, were categorically denied yes. to, to slaves during Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. For 150 years. Yeah. So this didn't just end with the Civil War and it continued for another 150 years.
Right. Um, I don't understand what the problem is. I'm sorry, I'm very nervous. No, I no, don't no. understand what the problem is about learning history. Right. I don't understand what the problem is with learning facts. Right. Um, well, I think this, this whole thrust of culture wars is a way to gain votes on the backs of minority communities. Well, Lee, thank you very much for your call. Mm-hmm. We, we will have to leave it there. District 32 State Senator Rosalind Osgood represents much of Broward County. Mayada Ursoff is a history teacher at Palmetto Middle School in Pinecrest. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, a new play takes a deeper look at Cuban hero Jose Marti. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Carmita. Frente a la palabra de los grandes jefes, nadie. Un poeta, un letrado que da hermosos discursos, que habla bien. That's Cuban actor Caleb Casas playing Cuban legend Jose Marti asking, who am I? It's an apt question. Marti was a freedom fighter, a poet, a philosopher. Exiles in Florida and communists on the island both revere him not only as Cuba's independence hero, but as its touchstone voice. He fought to rid Cuba of Spanish imperialism in the 19th century, and in books like Nuestra America or Our America, he laid out an autonomous vision for Cuba and Latin America in the 20th century. But while we feel we know hemispheric heroes like Simón Bolívar, we're less familiar with who Martí was as a flesh-and-blood human being. Hierro, a new drama by Cuban playwright Carlos Celdran that opened last night at the Miami-Dade County Auditorium hopes to correct that. Hierro, which means iron in Spanish, is performed in Spanish but is simultaneously translated for English-speaking audience members. What are your thoughts about Jose Marti, the icon but also the person? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Alexa Kube. She's the executive and artistic director of the South Florida theater company Arca Images and the Miami producer of Hierro. Alexa, tell us about the story that Hierro relates about Jose Marti. What is the central drama of the play and, and why did your production company want to bring it to Miami? Okay, thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me here. Uh, well, I, I was introduced to the play by his writer and director, Carlos Endran, mm-hmm. who has been working with us in the past two productions. And um, I was immediately captivated by, by the play. Um, I didn't know this Marti. You know, we mm-hmm. all in Cuba, Latin America, we know, as, as you said, uh, the hero, the writer, the poet. But this is a, a fiction character about Marti. So and this, to, this is a, a fictionalized uh, right. story. And to of, turn but, and to turn such a figure, you know, it's uh-huh. it's an odyssey. It's it's very daring right. uh, by the author and, and he says that himself. Uh, to to turn uh, Marti into a fictional character. Um, and what what is the basic situation though of, of the story? Is that the the man the man uh, in in 
trapped in a very ill body? I mean, we don't know. Right. Uh, at least exactly. I didn't know that that he suffered so much. Uh, you know, so many illnesses that mm -hmm. he had fevers. Uh, uh, he 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 had a a weak uh, body. You know. Uh, that trapped him somehow, and he had to have a tremendous will to overcome, you know, that that the sickness that followed him all of his life. Right. And and so that's that's an example of, of perhaps something about Marti the that, man that we we didn't know that, that is that, not shown in history that, books. That, that, that right. Ron wants to bring out. And exactly the 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 play centered in uh, during his years in New York and Tampa. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna see Marti dealing with his personal life uh, with Carmen Sayas Bassan, who was his wife, right. and and also the figure, the character of of Carmen Sayas Bassan is brought to life. This was a woman that was uh, very hated by by many people because she she was seen as unsupportive of Marti, uh, she took his son away from him. But we're gonna also see the other side of the story, you know, right. the, the woman that had to give up uh, many things. The woman to... he calls Carmita in that. In that no, in that, in uh, no, Carmita is actually, because that those two okay. essential women women in, in his life was Carmen Sayas Bazan, who was uh, his wife, right. and Carmen Miralles, who was uh, his lover. Okay, so there's some drama no, right there. There is some <laughs> drama right that we, there. That we should know about. And, right. and what does the playwright Carlos Eldran, who also directs this production, yes. right? What does he hope that the drama will reveal to us, not just about Jose Marti the hero, but Jose Marti the person? What 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 is the most important aspect of the person that Celdran hopes to convey to us in yeah. this play? As as we see the man, we even admire ma more uh, the figure of Marti. Because um, it's not a statue, you know, right. up there in Central Park, or it's not a, it's, mm -hmm. it's not in bronze. It's it's or the, in or the man we named the, the, these right. Cuban American schools right. after it's in here flesh. in Miami. And you right. see huh? his weakness, but through his weakness, uh, you even admire him uh, even more. For example, there is a scene on. I, I always say it in on interviews because I, I cannot stop talking about it. There is a scene uh, in the play that is my favorite one. Um, he was tried to to be killed, you know? Someone tried to kill him, right. to poison him. To poison him, uh, right. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene where these two men, and you know, talk to each other. Right. And Marti talks to him because he wants to understand him. Let's let's play the 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 the, the clip okay. from, from from that scene that we have just just to familiarize people with it. And but 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 you you make the point. I mean, Marti wanted Cuba and Cubans to rise above the cruelties that they had experienced uh, under Spanish rule, which included, as you just pointed out, an attempt on this. his life, right. an attempt to poison him. And and as I said, in this in this one scene, he confronts the man uh, who who tried to kill him. And as you said, this is this is probably the most impactful scene um, that 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 it is in the play. Te perdono. Me perdona. ¿Por qué dice eso? ¿Qué quiere decir con eso? Porque pese al daño que me hiciste. So there Marti tells his would-be assassin, Te perdono. I forgive I you. I forgive you. And, and you told WLRN's Christine Dimitri this week that you consider that scene the play's most important. Um, because why? What, what because does it say about it, Marti it that's it so important? It embodies who he, who he was, mm -hmm. you know? Who, so it was a man capable of feeling hatred, uh, you know, of all those low feelings, but he wanted to rise above that. Right. And to understand the man who tried to kill him, because if he understood 
why he tried to do it, then who could he could forgive him and heal mm-hmm. from that. Now we we think of Marti as being this resolute leader and philosopher, but but along with his health, as you mentioned before, he did also wrestle with a lot of self doubts about his abilities and his mission. Yes. What, what were some of those important self-doubts? Yes, yes. Um, there is always the insecurity, you know, be, be, be mm-hmm. beyond the, the, the hero. And uh, he confronts himself during the play, asking questions like that, like you said at the beginning, who am I? You know, people see me just as a poet and so, someone who can write beautiful things. Right. But what am I really doing? Who am I really moving or inspiring? You know, I haven't fought uh, a war. Uh, all, all these things haunted him. Mm-hmm. Even his uh, capability, capacity to to give food to his right. he, to he his was, family. He, he was seen. He was seen as a freedom warrior, but right. yet he he realized himself. I'm not really a soldier. Right. Not, yeah. Right. So th- and th- th- there is a scene where there is car- four characters, and he says, "There is only four of us here, and we are already killing each other. We are already incapable of understanding each other and of." being able to say, hey, you're right. Right, and that makes it very difficult to lead and a freedom movement. And that makes it, yeah. and, and that, yeah. it, you know, it, it's a bigger picture. It's for people there, but it, he takes him to Cuba, right? you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the Cuban people, and then to the world, because it's universal. That right. Why can't we uh, listen, uh, respect, communicate? Right. It's... It's it's a it's, I'm really I'm really really excited about this place and 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 mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful drama that I hope everybody I, can go and see. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the new play on stage here about Cuban hero Jose Marti called Hierro. Call us at 800-743-WLRN 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. Let, let's talk a little bit about the unique production of Hierro at the Miami-Dade County Auditorium. The play is performed in Spanish, but instead of using subtitles, it provides audience members with headphones to hear actors off stage mm-hmm. simultaneously translating the dialogue in, into English. Why did you make that production choice? Uh, well, first, because it's available at the Miami-Dade County Auditorium, and uh-huh. not many theaters that I know have that, that you know, the technical capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, you know, it's not the same to be in a cinema watching a movie and reading subtitles. I guess we're mm-hmm. more used to that. But theater is live. You right. have the actors there in front of you performing. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to have all the action there in front of your eyes and, and be looking at, uh, on sure, the top to be distracted that way right, right. right. That so make, this makes this, this makes it wonderful we we have uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, an amazing actor that does yeah tell, the tell us a little bit tell us a little bit more about uh, the, the actors um, uh, but also about the Cuban author Carlos Celdran tell us a little bit about him and the and the and the Cuban actors Okay, well, um, the the person that does the translation is Larry Villanueva. It's part of of Arca Images, mm-hmm. and and he's an amazing actor, and you know he does a solid reading, mm-hmm. you know, so he doesn't interpret for the actors. Right. He just gives the information in a you know good way, and it doesn't distract you from from the action. Okay. About Carlos, oh my God, what can I tell? I'm so blessed to be working with him. Um, 
he is amazing about bringing the 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 flesh in the characters you know they're very human mm-hmm. and the way he his i mean his key thing as a director is that he works with the actor to bring out the truth right and now uh, jose marti is obviously the most important historical icon of the cuban community here in miami and in south florida and that community is the majority population here. Now, you're Venezuelan-American, so you probably wish non-Latinos here knew more about Simón Bolívar. I do. But, but, does, <laughs> but does this make it all the more important that non-Cubans here come see this place so they can better understand the historical psyche of the city we live in? Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a play for everybody because, I, I, I mean, if we, even, if we even forget that it's Jose Martí and he's, he is who he is, mm-hmm. you know, the man that is portrayed there is such a, a powerful character and, and the, the story is universal, you know? Uh, so, yes, it, it will be wonderful that, that everybody, not only Cubans, join us. Now, in the 30 seconds we have left here, I think we also have to point out that Jose Marti is not only an icon in in Cuba, in, in, no, in, all in, Latin America. Here, here yeah. but, in, but in Cuba, in amongst the communist regime, yes. do you worry that there could be some political controversy here in this community because of the play? Hey, uh, you know, anything could happen, but I don't really think so. The mm. way it has been treated is, is so respectful. Uh, mm. It has such an artistic level. If it didn't happen in the island, right. I mean, I don't see why it would okay. happen here. Yeah. Well, Alexa Kube is the executive and artistic director of Arca Images and the Miami producer of the play of Hierro about Jose Marti. Alexa, thanks and congratulations. Thank you so much, Tim. Finally on the roundup, August begins next week. In Miami, that means oppressive heat, as if we haven't had that already this summer. Hurricanes and suddenly wishing that you lived in Wisconsin. There is one saving grace, though. The annual Miami Spice. Starting next Tuesday through September, almost 250 restaurants in Greater Miami, including scores of the most expensive gourmet eateries, will suddenly become affordable. They'll be offering three-course dinners at discounted fixed prices as low as $45. Among the best deals, according to Miami New Times, are the Michelin-starred sushi restaurant Asabu in Miami Beach, the Pan Latin Fair at Chica on Biscayne Boulevard, or the Aegean Cuisine at Doya in Wynwood. Wherever you go, get out there and eat like you're a hedonist Wall Street trader in town for Art Basel. And forget that it's August. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, merci, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.